So it was a negative meaning uh, that emerged through the, uh, what maybe Zizek would later call the gap. But this is like, that's the structuralist interpretation. And the post-structuralist would come along and say, no, you can never arrive. It isn't, you can indefinitely make associations. There's no way for within this set of relations for there to be a de definite meaning that arises or a relationship, not even in the context of a chain of signifiers um, and not even negatively. Uh, and that was the post-structuralist turn. So there is a difference between structuralism and post-structuralism. And then the other thing is that when Zizek came on the scene, and maybe we can do another half hour or 45 minutes when we're done with this part of the conversation for patrons and talk about Zizek exclusively for a little while. All right, so um, welcome to the Sublation Media Twitch stream and uh, to Pop the Left. Um, Pop the Left is a bit rudderless these days since Derek Varn left, so I'm, I'm bringing people in from around the world. Today I have two Germans on to discuss the Frankfurt School, Andreas Wintersberger and Stefan Haim. Um, we'll be discussing uh, the... Uh, the history of the Frankfurt School, I guess my question for you guys is going to be all the way through, why is the Frankfurt School so often blamed for the degeneration of Marxism? And um, and how, do, what, how does Lacan fit into that history? You are both members of the Platypus Affiliated Society. Um, I, I think I, 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 did we meet, did we run into each other at the convention? We did. Yeah, yes, we did briefly. Yeah, yeah. So I'm glad to see you again. Sorry, it just I, it was a slew of people, so I, I should remember your faces, but I'm not always good at that. Um, but yeah, I'm glad to have you on uh, the stream and uh, the podcast. Uh, and let me just start with this question: How did you come to be part of the Platypus Affiliated Society? Um, and what does Platypus look like from a German perspective? How is it taken up? by the German left. Is it controversial in Germany as it is in, in America? Well, I mean, since I'm uh, actually part of the Platypus chapter in Vienna, Austria, I would say, Stefan, go ahead. Okay. Uh, maybe you ask the question. All right. All right. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Um, I came across Platypus when it first came to Germany. Like, uh, we had two members, uh, Markus Nidobitek and Jezon Zobota, who had, who had stayed in America for one year. And Marcus had Googled Marxist reading group for New York and found Platypus. And he told Jezon, who went to Chicago, oh, they also have reading groups in Chicago. So that's how the two discovered Platypus. And some years later, they brought it back to Germany, started Platypus Germany in Frankfurt same Frankfurt as of the famous Frankfurt School. And there in the fall of 2011, around Occupy happening, I came across Platypus. I've met friends on campus who knew Marcus and I was looking for Marx reading group. A lot of my friends who had like got to know earlier that year were former Antifa members. There was a lot of talk about Adorno and Marx. So I uh, went to a bookshop and uh, bought the Communist Manifesto and Mini Memoralia as fits the German left mm -hmm. and felt I needed to do some background reading. And so I stumbled over this reading group that read Marx as well as Adorno with the strange for the German context um, combination of also reading not only Luxembourg and Trotsky, but also Lenin, who was known mm -hmm. as kind of, you know, like an authoritarian figure who most of the left counterposes to Adorno. Of course, when I came across the idea of Adorno's Leninism, which Chris Cotrone formulated, who you had on your podcast several times, um, mm -hmm. of which I'm always a fan, of course, um, mm -hmm. that was interesting. And it was especially interesting in the face of Occupy, because Occupy had a huge demonstration in Frankfurt. It was 20,000 people. And most of the people uh, who were there seemed to be unhappy to be there, seemed to be unhappy and confused with how Occupy took shape 
or maybe better that it didn't take any shape and it was mm -hmm. seen as somehow regressive somehow not leading to anything but also everyone understood that it was special like something big going on and i was interested in that and basically platypus prepared me for the understanding and acceptance that occupy was leading nowhere and that all of the interventions were meant in good faith but would not get us out of the problem the historical problem of the left not only being stuck but being dead meaning not being capable of intervening into history and yeah um in early 2013 i became a member and always stuck with the project since then led several reading groups panels, teach-ins, and saw the organization grow in Germany. And to answer to the later part of your question, it's bizarre how the German left takes up platypus, because on the one hand, we seem to be ubiquitous, like no one really gets around us, everyone have, has their opinion on us. But on the other hand, we are also, we're existing in a, in a dark spot, so to speak. They're, there seems to be a shadow ban on platypus in a certain kind of way, mostly on the ideas we propose. I think people love to take up one of our slogans, either the left is dead, of course it's dead, right? Like who would disagree on this? Or of course we need a left, right? Like what a special- Or long live the left. Exactly. Right. Mm. Yeah, uh, okay, so no, keep going, yeah. Here, I think just to, to keep it short, over the last years, we've engaged with several parts of the left over Germany. And I think a lot of parts of the, like huge parts of the left who still remain are seeing that we are really stuck in a cul-de-sac, in a dead end street. And that a certain kind of conversation, thoughtful conversation over ideas and history might not be the worst thing to keep going on. So, um, in the United States, the objections to platypus center around, or used to, used to center around the perception that platypus was um, secretly right-wing, or not of the left, really, but was harboring um, maybe, a, you know, some sort of uh, unstated or not-so-hidden love of re the Republican Party or Trump or, um, before that... Uh, American imperialism uh, back in the days of uh, the the anti-war movement in the in the 2000s. Um, today, I feel as though the platypus affiliated society is perceived to be ultra leftist, um, out of touch, uh, impractical, sectarian, Trotskyist. Um, which was not were not the accusations hurled at. The organization and the, when I first became aware of it. So it's kind of interesting to see that transformation. In Germany, is there suspicion about the political character of the Platypus Affiliated Society um, in terms of it being a right-wing deviation or is or are you perceived to be, you know, sectarian trots or how, how is that taken up in, in either Austria or Germany? How, how's that taken up? Well, I think I can speak to that a little bit. I mean, although I'm not um, uh, a member of Platypus for as long as Stefan is, I joined the organization at the beginning of 2019. Mm -hmm. And I had this very interesting experience in the first months of my membership um, because I wasn't part of the left before that. I had really no clue about what the left was about. I had read the communist manifesto when i was 16 but mostly to like you know play the advocatus diaboli the devil's advocate with like some friends of mine who were in trotskyist sex so i could say well but you know this is why it doesn't work or whatever so that mm -hmm. was kind of like the thing but but when i got more interested in it and when i started to go to the reading group and um that was a process of its own but when i became a member and i decided that this is the most interesting thing for me to have on the left, um, I took up more responsibility and I started to go to left events, right? Like as a platypus member. And within these first months, I had like within one week, a very interesting, I would like intellectual sensation in that sense. 
I, I was going to an event that was organized by by like uh, a current on the left, which was sort of anti-Deutsch. I don't know if, if, if that's a thing in the U.S. Probably what, not. What, is, what does that mean? T tell people who are watching what anti-Deutsch is. Well, I might, I might pass that one over to Stefan because I think he's, he might be able to, to explain that uh, more precisely than I am. And then we'll come back to you so you can finish your yeah. story. So go ahead, <coughs> Stefan. Um, okay, so let's keep it short. Um, I guess the name mostly comes from a certain change on the German left through the German reunification slash the annexation of the GDR, as the hardcore Trotskyists like to call it. Um, and it was basically the idea that there was a wrong anti-Americanism, an overemphasized anti-Americanism on the German left and that Germany itself was growing as a new imperial power. Mostly this came out of certain like autonomous, but also council communist, as well as former Maoist currents of the German left. Mm. And after that, the, the movement splintered pretty early on. And what um, the anti-Deutsche really became famous for, I think internationally, was a rather unambivalent pro-Americanism, right? And that's also coming back to your question. In Germany, um, you get people unironically calling for US American bomb raids on certain countries to depend to, um, to further freedom, like political freedom in the world. So I think that's what did never make platypus appear as something pro-imperialism because we always try to understand the anti-Deutsch as a part of the left and their fervent, unambivalent pro-Americanism as a mirror image of the unfiltered, unambivalent anti-Americanism which they had encountered. Mm -hmm. And that's so to speak, like, let's keep it at this. We also had several of their speakers on our background. If you want to have a real deep dive into the idea of the anti-Deutsch, which I think internationally are known best for their um, support of Israel, as often they call mm. their unconditional support for the state of Israel, you should read um, the translation we published in the Platypus Review, which is called Communism and Israel by the late mm. Joachim Boom. And mm -hmm. one more addition before I pass it back to Andreas is yeah. um, how platypus is perceived with its which kind of branches, uh, brand of leftism uh, depends on the cycles of the dead left itself. There is an early article written by or part of an article um, by Richard Rubin, which is types of ambiguity, which um, describes four different views of how platypus is this or that part of leftism. And for example, the Cliffites, the followers of Tony, have always understood platypus as ultra leftism. So lots of ambiguities, uh, lots of different characterizations of this weird and beautiful of nature of the platypus. Yeah. Thanks. Go Stephen. ahead. Um, and I think that might like kind of provide a segue as well to, to the topic of Lacan the Frankfurt School, maybe also yep. like the idea of what psychoanalysis might have to do with Marxism. Hi, I'm going to interrupt this video to let you know about the Global Center for Advanced Studies upcoming symposium in Belfast. Um, this is happening on May 23rd through May 27th. It's happening in Belfast. Uh, and you can find out about the seminar and symposium on the GCAS website. So uh, take a look at that. Um, there'll be a link to the symposium and to the GCAS website in the description of this video and in the uh, show notes for the podcast. Barry Taylor will be presenting the section entitled Radical Theology and the New Abnormal. And uh, Jameson Webster uh, will be presenting on Psychoanalysis and the Body. Uh, so take a look for that online at GCAS's website. That's GCAS, that's the Global Center for Advanced Studies, and uh, you'll find a link in the description.
But why don't we come back to, to, to that though and let you finish your story because I don't want to cut that off. You were saying you yeah, no worries. It's it, it relates yeah. to that. It relates okay. to that. No worries. Okay. Um, because yeah, you were talking about the anti-Deutsch, and I was going to that event. It was a lecture given by someone who who um, is in charge of uh, a publishing house, which came out of the anti-Deutsch anti-Deutsch current, and it's situated here in Vienna. So anyway, this lecture is about how um, it is complete and utter bullshit to think that um, Adorno and Lenin can be read in the same traditional, in the same um, sort of, in the same uh, tradition of Marxism. So that's the point. Like these two figures are completely, you know, counterposed to each other. So and I'm there in this in this in this lecture giving by the person, and that person explicitly, you know, says that. Or, takes exam takes platypus the group platypus as an example of you know this i don't know weird wish to make adorno into some weird form of lenin leninist and that you know like that this is uh, completely bizarre and cannot be done and actually like one of these persons afterwards when i talked to them and and i said that i'm part of the platypus affiliated society right and he was like if people like you ever come to power people like me will be shot so that was my impression, right? And I was like, what the fuck? I just joined this organization uh, two months ago. And in the same week, I went to another um, event uh, mm. on which I spoke. It was a panel and it was organized by a new uh, leftist youth movement that was formed at the time. And they were like having a panel on the question, should we build a party? And they know Platypus in Vienna, so they invited someone from Platypus to, to address the question. Mm. And what I did there, I just basically read our statement of purpose, which declares that, you know, the new left has failed as well. So that there is a problem there that is not resolved yet, which resulted, you know, like people in the, the audience, mostly uh, boomers, like people from the boomer generation, standing up and accusing me that I'm just, you know, this typical leftist guy in the ivory tower, not doing anything, just talking about, you know, like stuff, but really not, not no sense of practice. So the thing was like being in this organization, right? Like in the same week, I was accused of like wanting to shoot people because I'm a proto-Bolshevist who reads Adorno. And mm -hmm. at the same time, like being part of the ivory tower and not being able to do anything. Mm -hmm. And talking about ambivalence and how that maybe tells more about the left than about platypus itself is mm -hmm. very like similar to the idea of psychoanalysis and this is on a very you know like this is not a perfect analogy but it's interesting to think about it that way mm -hmm. to the idea of transference you know that the analyst right. is there you know as a, a, a the plane on which you know symptoms can be transferred to be worked through to be made conscious and i think that right. really speaks to because you use you you, uh, you asked the question doc about you know, whether Platypus is, was perceived as secretly right-wing, now we're ultra-leftist. <clears throat> that's, I think, you know, speaking, that speaks to the ambivalence and the way how Platypus relates to the left, you know. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now I want to um, move into Lacan. Like you said, this is a good segue into Lacan. Um, and uh, I'm going to, Spencer Leonard, who's one of the founders of the Platypus Affiliated Society, is now the editor of Sublation Magazine, the editor-in-chief. There are two other editors, Alfie Baun and Eugene Bajalan. And <clears throat> I uh, have come across in conversation with Spencer that he is not a fan of Slovak Zizek or Lacan. And I, I wanted to, and I asked him if he could come on and, and talk about Zizek and Lacan. And um, he, he was reluctant to, and I got, directed in a variety of ways. And I believe our conversation is coming out of that, um, if I'm remembering the, the sequence here. So I want to ask you, um, how is uh, psychoanalysis taken, how is take, psychoanalysis a part of the Platypus Affiliated Society's uh, understanding or a part of, uh, you know, what, they're, what they're, you're about? And what is... Uh, wrong with Lacan? Why? Why? If you're if you are psychoanalytic in some way, why aren't you Lacanian? Like a good portion of the current left is, I think, um, who are who who can who dabble in psychoanalysis or who, who are interested in psychoanalysis. It seems like Lacan is a psychoanalytic thinker that can be taken taken seriously today um, by the left. But 
Why, why aren't you, or if you aren't, Lacanian? Well, two things. Um, at first, I think it's helpful for the conversation to um, to make a distinction. And yeah. this distinction I took from, from... Oh, sorry. Stefan, you wanted to... Oh, anyway. I think you're um, saying amen to that. Make that distinction. Oh, sorry. I didn't hear that. <laughs> he said, yeah, uh, but yeah. Anyway. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, and I take that distinction from Herbert Marcuse's book, Errors and Civilization, which mm -hmm. actually Stefan once re recommended to me. Mm -hmm. um, it's from 1955. And there Marcuse makes the distinction between psychoanalytic therapy and psychoanalytic theory. And I think that is what we have to do here as well. When we say that there is an element of psychoanalysis in Platypus, this is not to be like this is not meant in a practical way, which is I hope quite obvious, but also on a theoretical level, it has to be we have to be clear on what that means, like what the the um what the relation between psychoanalysis and Marxism, also the the history of Marxism actually means. The second mm. thing I kind of wanted to say is that, you know, coming back to that analogy of psychoanalysis, and that's what I would, you know, like to keep it at for now, like talking mm. about analogies between mm. the way Platypus functions and psychoanalysis. Analysis. It's not good to say, you know, Lacan is either right or wrong. You know, it, 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 that, that's not the point. It's not the point about being a fan or, or liking, you know, like, theory or a certain author theory. The question mm. is, in what way is Lacan a symptom of regression? In what way is the fact that that Lacan is taken up by the left, not only the new left, but also today, you know, you mentioned Zizek, but also Judith Butler, in what way presents that a symptom of the regression of the failure of world revolution? I think that mm. is the way how we have to address, um, you know, stuff like Lacan, but also the left in general. And yeah, so that, that's the thing. And uh, I would say, um, uh, where, where, where should I start? I think it's interesting, you know, to have a bit of a comparison between Frankfurt schools, uh, the Frankfurt schools relation to psychoanalysis and the Lacanian left's relation to psychoanalysis. Okay. And I think, so that's, that's kind of like the way I think, which provides a good segue into it. But mm -hmm. <laughs> before we dive into that, I think mm -hmm. it's necessary to even go back further to the 30s and to a Marxist psychoanalysis called Wilhelm Reich. Yeah, yeah. Because for Wilhelm Reich, which was quite an influential figure for Erich Fromm, who then was very influential for the, Franco, uh, the Frankfurt School's uh, relation to psychoanalysis. So for Wilhelm Reich, um, the point of using psychoanalysis as a force of production for the political work of the party, the German Communist Party in that sense, was a result of a deep crisis. A deep crisis not only of the Communist Party of Germany, but of um, the World Socialist Movement. We're talking about, you know, especially his book, um, The Mass Psychology of Fascism, which came out in 33. And it tries to grapple with the fact that during the deep economic crisis at the end of the, the 1920s, a lot of the workers didn't vote for um, either the communists or the social democrats, but for the fascists. So this Stalinized version of explaining that your immediate material interests somehow determine your political consciousness, you know, it really did not meet reality at that point in history. So Wilhelm Reich turned to psychoanalysis or turned to Freud to kind of like find a way how one can make sense of that. But, and I think this is very important, this is not like Freudio Marxism because the term itself is misleading. It's not about a fusion or a synthesis of, you know, premises of psychoanalysis and some premises of Marxism. We kind of bound them together because they're both like really critical and comes out this cool mystified thing. It's, there is a clear hierarchy, actually. Like, psychoanalytic premises are applied as a force of production within the Marxist, the critical Marxist framework of history. Okay, so I want to pause you there. Point. Okay, okay. I, I, I just wanted you to clarify, when you say a force of production, 
yeah. I have this sort of uh, immediate thought of, you know, commodity production, yeah. uh, you know, e economic and material production. Um, but you, when you're saying force of production, it seems like you're talking about something else uh, than that. It's not that kind of force of production. It's a political force or an ideological force of production. Is that, am I correct in thinking that or explain what you mean by force of production in this context? Well, I would say, I mean, forces of production are not just, you know, factories or, or I don't know, like huge places to produce things automatically or whatever. I mm -hmm. think it's um, the general social intellect and it's part of that, like psychoanalysis. And the point why I say forces of production, you know what I mean by that is also there is nothing. And I think this might be a controversial statement, but. Stefan, if you want to add to that, please go ahead. But there is nothing inherently critical in psychoanalytic um, premises. We can see that. And I think that's the most interesting thing ever, which, which kind of led me to that topic, actually, that psychoanalysis or certain premises of it were integrated into mass society on a large scale, whether, whether it be, you know, like the Nazis did it, the Nazis used certain psychoanalytical conceptions for their propaganda. And of course, you know, public relations as a, as a field is based on certain psychoanalytic premises. So that's the thing. It, it, it is, there is nothing, you know, inherently critical or resistant within psychoanalytic theory or premises, you know, that wouldn't make it applicable um, to, to the crisis of bourgeois society. Mm -hmm. to, it, it, as a force of production, it is itself in, in crisis. Like what I want to get at, you know, to, to come back to the earlier point um, mm -hmm. about Reich is that for Reich, it is not a synthesis. It is not like an equal, you know, relationship of taking something from Marxism, taking something from psychoanalysis and then fusing it. Mm -hmm. That's not the case. And that's, in, and that's important. The second thing which is important is that this whole you know, the, the whole idea of trying to get something from psychoanalysis and make it useful for the critique of bourgeois society is the result of a crisis, is the result of the crisis and the failure of the world revolution after 1917. Mm -hmm. And this sets the stage, I think, for the Frankfurt School's relation to psychoanalysis, not so much for Lacan, because he, you know, um, he just has a very, very different set of premises, a very, very different goal, you know, what, what he wants to achieve. And this, I think, now leads us to, to um, the point with, with which I started. Namely, you know, you, you were asking about Lacan, what, what about him, what about, you know, his Marxism or whatever. Then the point where I started is a comparison between how the Frankfurt School and how Lacan relates to psychoanalysis. And interestingly, and I think this is actually quite fascinating, you have in the 50s, both Adorno, Marcuse, and Lacan on the other uh, side, if you want to say, they both feel the urge to, to regain or to, um, to hint at the critical potential of psychoanalysis, the critical insight psychoanalysis can provide. But they do so, like I said, with very different different premises, because both feel that actually this 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 very special critical insight into society that was gained with with Freudian thought has been lost or is a danger because it's being integrated into you know not a form of it's being integrated in a way that it really becomes a measure of adapting to a bad society. Mm -hmm. So there is this way. So both of these figures, of these intellectual actors, if you want to call them that, they see this problem. They see, like, you know, they, they feel that something about Freud is lost. And they both, you know, and this is where we can get into, like, the differences then, they both um, um, want to sort of hint at, point out the critical currency, the critical currency of Freudian thought. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. So, so originally, do you think Freud's thought had a critical import, and then then it was recuperated by mass society and and turned into an ideological force of production to to maintain capitalist relations? Is that would you say that's 
correct? Or do you think Freud thought from the very beginning was, um, was, uh, uh, you know, incorporated I into think bourgeois culture? Sure. I, I want to address it because I think it's when I said that there is nothing inherently critical about Freudian thought, I don't mean, I mean that the point that Adorno, for example, but also Wilhelm Reich saw, you know, that Freud was getting at a very, very deep contradiction of society in his own way, not by, by like presupposing a Marxist framework or whatever, but by his independent thought and search for, for, you know, at first just a cure of symptoms, he was getting at a very, how to say, a, a very self-contradictory relationship of culture and nature, of this conflict that is deeply embedded within, you know, human individuals living on a bourgeois society. And I think it like this this thought itself tells something about you know the crisis of bourgeois society, the crisis that society is in. But it has to be taken up in a Marxist sense. In that sense, it has to be to be made sense of as the crisis, or it has to be made sense of as being tied to the crisis of capital and labor. And I think mm -hmm. that's 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 a very important issue. So it's not about you know, Freud's thought itself being conservative or whatever. It's about, you know, um, seeing Freud's thought itself, itself as a symptom of the self-contradiction of bourgeois society. And I think that's that's important. Right. Um, well, yeah, that's important. And it's a little controversial. Um, I, uh, uh, I'm just going to, I keep saying this on stream, so I might as well. Uh, my girlfriend is a psychoanalyst. And I talk to her about psychoanalysis from time to time, and I kind of ask her, does she think that the structure of, of consciousness that Freud put forward or that Melanie Klein developed further um, is transhistorical, that it's, that it's just a product of our biology and our humanness, or does she think it's historical? And it's a question that um, she hadn't really wrestled with before uh she's a clinician um and uh, you know the i don't think she's sure but it, it seems to me that from a clinician's perspective it's maybe not a very important question i think the underlying assumption is often just that yes this is just a uh transhistorical structure of consciousness that that they're dealing with the same way that a medical doctor might deal with a, a disease in our our body that you know and our body is again transhistorical it's not it's not just a social construct construct and if it is if something about our body is historically determined it doesn't matter very much to the doctor right but um uh i think freud believed he was believed, he was discovering something that was transhistorical about human consciousness um but perhaps I'm wrong about that. I, you know, I'm not a Freud scholar. Um, but uh, does it matter uh, what what can we interpret Freud's thought as a symptom of the of the crisis of bourgeois culture, um, even if we think that it that he was attempting to nail down a transhistorical fact about human consciousness, even if he was just doing what he thought of as natural science. Since he was about to answer that question, let me ask a different one um, to you. Um, uh, so you said that Lacan particularly was a, a kind of regression. Freud might not have been a symptom of, of regression, um, but or was he? Was well, Freud himself also a symptom it, of a regression? It, it, I guess that's the same question, really, is what I just asked. It depends on what we mean by regression. Um, and to mm -hmm. be a bit more specific, by regression, I mean explicitly... Uh, and when I talk about Lacan as a symptom of regression, I, and again, I'm talking about especially the way why Lacan is interested, is interesting for the left, because this is the reason why we are here and talking about Lacan, you know, because mm -hmm. otherwise Lacan himself never considered himself a, like to be a Marxist or even to be a leftist for that matter. It was always going even back to the 30s, uh, the sort of milieu around him that made him um, attractive. Uh, that, that, that was attracted to him and trying to make him into a leftist figure. So when I talk about regression, I mean the regression of 
the possibility for world revolution, objectively as well as uh, uh, subjectively. Mm -hmm. um, the 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 uh, what's the word? The rationalization, the pathological rationalization for not being able to change the world on the left, you know, mm -hmm. subjectively as well as objectively. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean by by um, regression when I talk about Lacan. Mm -hmm. And with Freud, I, I think that's a different that's a different kind of story. And and I think that's not so much the point here. I think the point here when Again, we talk about Lacan and why is why he is interesting for for leftists today and and um, you know also during the time of the new left. I think it's because um, he he provides what seems at first a radical you know a radical view of history and a radical view of society. But I'm, what I mean by that, I mean, we, we can get into that now, like talking about Lacan a bit more, if you, if you mm -hmm. like. Um, mm -hmm. Because according to Lacan, Lacan um, the unconsciousness is structured like a language. This is one of the, the you know, like the most famous phrases mm -hmm. um, stemming from, from Lacan. So the point is, from the, from the onset on, you know, from, from the 50s on, when Lacan is trying to regain the critical critical element of, of Freudian psychoanalysis against, you know, psychoanalytic practice just becoming a measure to make people more fit to the society mm -hmm. they're in. Lacan says, no, actually, psychoanalysis and the structure of the unconscious, the linguistic structure of the unconscious really, you know, gets us into a very, very deep problem with the nature of our subjectivity, uh, like in general. Because Lacan is very much influenced by um, the idea of linguistic structuralism, as well as by Heidegger's fundamental ontology. I would even dare to say that these are like two very big, maybe the most important influences, you know, on Lacan. So we have the idea that that again, you know, thinking about the 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 unconscious like language um, that coming from linguistic structuralism that words, you know, get their meaning only by relation to other words, not by relation to, to their objects. So, right. And following that thought, you know, you can, you quickly come to the idea that, well, you can play that game indefinitely. You know, if that word is, gains its meaning only by relation to the other word and the, you know, it gets the meaning only through relation of the other word and so on. Mm -hmm. So we have to have a closed system of reference in which there is, you know, any kind of at least last piece to that so-called chain of signifiers that's what what Lacan uses the term for it for there to be any meaning behind the words at all because otherwise they're just referential you know you can they can be referenced inevitably uh, uh not inevitably uh, in the uh, in, in def yeah indefinitely yeah indefinitely indef thanks yeah so and and the point is there is no such thing as this as this last piece you know there is no such thing there is always, how to say that, a necessary uh, non-identity between the word I'm using and the object it is supposed to describe. Because yeah, and I want to want to step in and say, like in, in structuralism, it's even a little more complicated than that because it's sure. that there's no referent to in any material world. The relationship is between the sign and the meaning or the signified something that is meaningful like uh, that all of it is subjective all of it is within the field of language right and and the other thing is that the difference between structuralism and what came along later is post-structuralism with Derrida and others is that the structuralists believe that there were necessary relations there was a necessary relationship between the sign and the signifier but that it emerged through language in a negative way there were as as the chain limited the the meaning of the of the sign so it was a negative meaning uh that emerged through the uh what maybe zizek would later call the gap but this is like that's the structuralist interpretation and the post-structuralist would come along and say no you can never arrive it isn't you can indefinitely make associations there's no way for within this 
set of relations for there to be a de definite meaning that arises for a relationship, not even in the context of a chain of signifiers, um, and not even negatively. Uh, and that was the post-structuralist current. So there is a difference between structuralism and post-structuralism. And then the other thing is that when Zizek came on the scene, and maybe we can do another half hour or 45 minutes when we're done with this part of the conversation for patrons and talk about Zizek exclusively for a little while. Um, I'm hoping, would you guys be willing to do that a little bit, maybe? Yeah. Or at least, okay, all right, good. So that's, I just need you to say yes to that so I can clip that out and put it at the beginning of the podcast. Um, no, but uh, yeah, so uh, the, the, the Zizek's book, The Sublime Object of Ideology, arrived on the scene in 1989 as a refutation of post-structuralism and a return to um, a more teleological uh, kind of thinking, a return to a more normative kind of thinking. Um, because so, and so the turn to Lacan was a turn away from postmodernism and post-structuralism and back to uh, some sort of, Zizek would say, Hegelian understanding. Um, later on, anyway, he would take kind of try to put Lacan and Hegel together. Um, but putting Zizek aside, I do think it's important to distinguish between post-structuralism and, and structuralism. And uh, even though both are idealist. Um, but anyway, so, uh, but Stefan, you seem to be working. You're like, I can see you. You move yeah. around. You're, 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 you're here on the screen. So interject, what, 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 intervene. Yeah, first with Zizek, like, just let me do one small hot take. We can come back later to it when you say, like, Zizek wanted to refute um, postmodernism. It's the same way uh, Khrushchev at the 20th Party Convention of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union um, denounced Stalin. It was the final victory of Stalinism. Um, and oh. that's exactly the confusion I hope we can get to. I would like mm. to, after I've, like, after now I've fixed my technology, two things you said. Uh, on the one hand, the question of like, is our psychology, is it a construction or is it nature? And I think here we are really at the root of the problem because I think psychoanalysis as well as Lacan are interesting as, you know, like the Frankfurt School deals with the revision of radical psychology in the 20th century as the product of the crisis of Marxism in the 20th century, as um, Andreas had mentioned it earlier, the failed revolution. Adorno also says this clearly um, when he talks about psychoanalysis. And what this points us to is the crisis of subjectivity in the 20th century, right? Like you mentioned with structuralism, you said all of it is subjective. That's very good because, right, like if all of it is subjective, there is no subject. Subject as well as object does not make sense without an object. The critical philosophy of the 19th century, um, the German, so-called German, the modern idealism from Kant to Hegel, going back to Rousseau, deals exactly with the, with the question and how far subject and object are in, uh, interdependent and interrelated. And what we're dealing with is, right, like it's the breakdown, the crisis of subjectivity in the breakdown of the subject-object dialectic in the 20th century right, the, uh, rooted in the crisis of Marxism. And the crisis of Marxism means, right, Marxism tried to give expression to the crisis of the subject-object dialectic. Hegel formulated the subject-object dialectic in which subject and object through a process of work, of labor, work closer and closer to each other, finding out in its incommensurability, its tension in how far both could be transformed and in how far the subject-object dialectic itself could be transformed. Mm. And Freud was trying to give an explanation, what are the objective reasons for the crisis of the subjectivity? And Freud, I think, was very smart to say it's the crisis of subjectivity in society. Mm. 
because he understood that society and subjectivity cannot be thought without each other and also that human psychology cannot be independent of society right like freud considered himself a scientist he was like a medical doctor but on the other hand he also is clear that culture and society especially labor and the need to you know like through work reproducing ourselves is deeply influential for how the depths of our psyche are structured mm. and mm. when marxism came into this crisis in the 20s Wilhelm Reich, as Andreas mentioned, tried to understand what does psychoanalysis understand, what the Marxist parties do not understand, and how could it be used to make good on the failed revolution. That this was never taken up by organized Marxism itself prompted the critique and the work of the Frankfurt School's critical theory. Mm -hmm. And then, as Andreas said, right, like in the 50s, psychoanalysis became mainstream. It was purely meant to build up happy, healthy, productive individuals 10 years after Auschwitz. Yeah. And the Frankfurt School, most of all, Marcuse and Adorno tried to formulate a critique of this. And I think through this touched similar points as Lacan. But the interesting point with Lacan is, right, as uh, Andreas said, he was against like the neo-Freudianism, against the revised psychoanalysis, which more or less tried to collapse uh, psychology into sociology. Mm -hmm. And Lacan tried to say, no, that's not the case, right? Like we're dealing with a radical theory. So we need to go to the radics, to the root of the problem and tries to put it forth in philosophical terms going back to Heidegger and structuralism, um, segueing into post-structuralism, right? And the interesting thing which Adorno brings forth, and this is really maybe the most important point, especially going to your back to your very important question Doug, about nature and society. Mm -hmm. um, the critical kernel of Freud is often quoted, or one of his critical kernels is the drive theory or instinct theory. I prefer the translation drive theory because it's closer to the German uh, original trieb. And therefore it thinks the basic structure of the psyche of the soul is formed by representations of humans being physical beings, right? Like that the most fundamental essential parts of our souls represent us as physical beings, but they're never they never occur in this pure state. They're always mediated and formed in society. Freud says drives are polymorphous and perverse. They take on many forms and they're deviant in their nature. They're oriented toward a goal, but the path they take to the goal is never predetermined. Mm -hmm. And Adorno especially criticized, as did Marcuse, that through trying to collapse psychoanalysis into sociology, the neo-Freudians revised psychoanalysis. The interesting thing is that Lacan, in opposing them, is doing the exact same thing. He also does not care about drives anymore. And for him, the body is something real, meaning it stands outside of discourse and also outside of the psyche. And that for me is something where I really would like recommend people to read Lacan and the Lacanian Left, a short essay by Andrew Collier, mm -hmm. um, which is dealing with how Lacan undermines psychoanalysis in taking away its scientific basis, mm -hmm. which is the conditio sine qua non for understanding in how far psychoanalysis also deals with society as well as with philosophical questions. Mm. And I think this is really like Lacan for us, I think is interesting because he represents the crisis of subjectivity in the 20th century, prompted by the crisis of Marxism in the 20th century. And he's interesting in so far as he tried to be 
radical in stepping up against the revisionists, but therefore also made psychoanalysis into something fundamentally different. And I think this is like the also the major problem with Lacan, right? He wants to be radical, so he wants to go to the root, but as Marx says, the root of everything, the root of man, is man producing himself. And this for Lacan is of zero interest, right? Because he says all of the fundamental paths for our, for ourselves are chosen before we are born, before we exist physically, and they cannot be changed by what we do. And therefore, he might be right against Marx, against Adorno, against Freud, against Hegel, against everyone. But then he is incompatible with Marxism in any kind of way as Marxism understood itself. And that's something we are interested in, right? Like, how does he come up again and again, even though he was clear about that? Okay, I'm, I'm confused by that because, um, uh, because, you know, my understanding of psychoanalysis itself is that it is a process of taking what is unconscious, pre-given, maybe formative, um, both from, you know, your inheritance, uh, uh, basically from your inheritance through the family and making it uh, conscious, exposing the the source of the of your symptoms um and so that not so that you can overcome uh the structure of being symptomatic but so that you are free from the rigid conformity to a, a particular symptom um and that's my understanding what lacan was after too in psychoanalysis was to create conditions for change and for well, freedom I think that's 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 very interesting, and I think that's very good that you bring it up because Lacan himself says, and this is uh, a quote that I take from the text Stefan just mentioned, and you just posted. Uh, Lacan himself says there is no such thing as progress. Everything we gain on one side, we lose on the other, and I think that really speaks to the way how Lacan ontologizes the relationship between consciousness and the unconscious. Because like to, to, to you know, take up something Stefan said, the thing about what I tried to say before with you know, the structuralist influences on Lacan, the unconscious being motivated like a language, the point of all that is that it is the mode of language itself that produces the split between consciousness and the unconscious. It is sort of the, the logic of being, if you want to call it like that, of the of language itself to split our consciousness because like i said there is this non-identity between subject and object we never ever you know like actually meet with our words the thing that the words are supposed to address we never get like what we want we never get what we are promised because like this this the the inability to actually create meaning is constitutive for you know the way language works this is the this is the twisted part about it you know it's and, and that's the thing where lacan for him this is something that completely stands out of any kind of social formation any kind of history this is sort of like this is on a level prior to anything that you know manifests in the world right this is simply the ontology of of our unconsciousness of our unconscious well, listen, we've been talking for nearly an hour. I want to get to this clip. I have a clip of Lacan I want to play, which you, I think you might have mentioned that we should look at. Um, and then I want to give you a, a, a very brief like defense, uh, one more round of defending Lacan, and then, and then we can yeah, – I'll give you guys the last word on it, and then we can maybe take a break. I will refill my coffee. I'll make myself some more coffee, and we'll do a second stream. Would you guys be willing to do a second stream in a bit? Okay. Sure. So, all right, here we go with, I'm going to see if I can get this, uh, share my screen with you guys. Here's Lacan. Look at that shirt. <laughs> That's why people really read Lacan. 
<rire> le langage, ça n'a jamais, ça ne donne jamais, ça ne permet jamais de formuler que des choses qui ont 25 sens. Mmh. Le sujet supposé savoir. Cette volonté subjective, si nous la voyons enfin, d'une façon enfin, vraiment permanente. Ok. So, sorry that I made you watch the whole video. It's just no, 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 no. That's okay. No, that I, I'm not uh, reluctant. I, I've, I've, I've seen it before. The discourse um, of the master. Yeah. That's all what right, it's so, all about. All right. So now, now, right. So look. All right. Here's the thing. I'm just going to talk to you without any pretenses, authentically, um, like that kid. Um, like I, the reason I came to Marxism rather than being an anarchist was because I came to it through Zizek, right? And and it was Zizek, who then and the combination of reading Zizek, encountering his talks, uh, and the economic crisis of 2008 which led me to be interested in Marx as primarily as a, a theory of political a theorist of political economy. Like, you know, and I went through the Marxist humanist initiative and uh, what I decided was because, because I believe Lacan was right about the need for a master. Right. What I decided was that we lived in under capitalism, which had a master and that master was the value form that uh, is produced through the exploitation of labor and that sets up all of our relations and that the task of a revolutionary is indeed to find a new master and to consciously do so, to organize ourselves uh, around some other aim, um, some other political economy, one that would not require a working class, but would, would exist. It wouldn't just be direct, authentic life wouldn't just be uh, a throwing aside of structure or mediation, but it would be a discovery of a new master. What, what Lacan says there with some irony, I would accept. And the, the other thing is that uh, around the, around that time, I wrote a novel called Billy Moon, which was all about um, May 68, that very moment. Actually, that's about four years later, but about that, revolutionary struggle and I put Christopher Robin Milne into May 68 and Christopher Robin was a guy who was defined by his father he was the, in the Winnie the Pooh stories and he, he was struggling to be his own master and um, the students in, in Paris were also struggling to create their own master to be their own master and um, uh, and I, I, I hoped by writing a novel about the, the failure of 68 with Christopher Robin that we, I could help myself think about how we could have a revolution that would be mature, that would accept limitations that are maybe inherent, that are transhistorical, but nonetheless, that we could progress by creating a new form of society. So anyway, there, I've given my best shot at defending Lacan. Wow. What do you think of that? I think um, it's a perfect example of what you're bringing up, right? Because we need to go back again to understand the 60s. We need to go back to the 30s. Mm. Because what you're saying about the master, so Lacan was studying with Alexander Kozhev in France, mm. who mm. was the first like really important Hegel scholar in France. And he taught all the French Stalinists. And he had this uh, peculiar super Stalinist reading of the master and servant, the Hound Knecht chapter in the phenomenology of spirit. Mm. But the point is that it's not about choosing a new master. It's about that there is a master slave dialectic and within and throughout the dialectic recognizes the submit the recognizes uh, sorry arises the recognition that the master is not important <clears throat> because the relationship which as you correctly pointed out is labor and the value form in our society 
already shows that the master is superfluous. What it's about, it's about like using the master for the slave or the servant. That's the important idea. And Lacan sticks with the idea we can simply change the master. In, and in this, he's taking seriously what Marxism was in his time, Stalinism, right? Because Stalinism tried to install itself, tried to install Marxism as the new master of society. And this already was giving up and selling out Marxism, selling it as something different. And this is, I think, the point Andreas really tried to underscore and I hope brought, uh, brought home is there is no progress. Lacan, like, we have to take him seriously. We have to take his word just as we have to take Marx's word, right? Like Marx says, my idea is the dictatorship of the proletariat. Lacan says, no progress. And only through this, I think we can take them seriously as the original thinkers they try to be through their work. Let, let me let me just comment on that quickly because yeah i also think it's great that you showed that clip um i kind of want to say something about the way how this you know how this is taken up by the left for example but you but you allow but you you know very um i think he's still alive right like uh very um uh important intellectual thinker on the left who you know you mentioned the the, the financial crisis 2008 2009 co-wrote a, a book with Zizek, right? The Communist Hypothesis. And the same Alain Badiou has, he, he uh, did a seminar on Lacan in the 90s. It's called Seminar on Anti-Philosophy. So, and in the seminar, you know, uh, Badiou quotes this text by Lacan. This text is called Monsieur A, in which Lacan says, well, you know, I, Lacan, have paid my tribute to Marx, but Marx has always been the restorer of order because just by the fact that he called the proletariat, the proletariat, that he gave a name, you know, of course the term existed before and Marx wasn't the one, you know, who, who used it for the first time anyway, but because of the theory, you know, Marx uh, came up with or, or tried to, to pursue critically. That is the reason why, you know, uh, that, that potential for change in history that was there with the with the emergence of the proletariat was foreclosed like mm. but you quotes this passage and then but you explicitly says it's actually the party itself that forecloses the possibility for change and that is i that is that was, when i first read that i was so struck by by you know the fact that i immediately like stefan said thought about you know what it must have been like to live in a time with a Stalinized kind of like very big party. And that is the left, you know, like the, 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 the Communist Party of France. Like, because mm. it, it, it makes so vividly, you know, this historical experience of the left of their time. But then again, when you read the Frankfurt School, right? So that, then you really get a sense of that there is no consciousness about the historical condition of their own thinking of their own position towards the left, of their own position towards Marxism, of their own position towards the party. There is no sense of what it was that was, that, that, that was lost. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's critical. And that's the critical difference between um, the Frankfurt School and Lacan. Because I mean, you see what I want to get at, because it is exactly by taking up Lacan in that, in that way that, you know, the point, like, but you says that it was actually the publication of the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels that foreclosed the historic possibility that arose with the emergence of the proletariat. This is also by the, re the, the reason, by the way, why Badiou considers the period between um, 1871 and 1914 as a downturn period for the left, mm -hmm. which interestingly was the time where mass socialist parties were formed around the world. Hmm. And I'd like to follow up with one very quick point. Andrea said <clears throat> Lacan called Marx the restorer of order. This hmm. is exactly how Heidegger treats Marxism. It's 100% the same thing. Heidegger says Marx was so critical of society that he almost 
broke through to the other side into being, right? But then he foreclosed that possibility in saying, actually, that would be that which would be totally different. Socialism would just be the conscious continuation of capitalism. That's where Heidegger is. That's where he fucked us, right? Like, and we were still stuck in this old, like, bourgeois logical mode of thinking. And that's exactly how Heidegger um, is taken up by Lacan when he speaks about Marx. Mm -hmm. um, right. But when Heidegger talks about capitalism, does he mean what Marx means when he talks about capitalism? Or does he mean something like technological society? Does he mean modernism or modernity? Does he mean uh, instrumental thinking? Um, I think or mostly he means bourgeois society, right? Like for Heidegger, the problem is not so much capitalism, but bourgeois society. Heidegger thinks that the problem of capitalism arose out of the bourgeois symbolical order. Uh, right. Let me just let me add to that, because I think since you brought up bourgeois society, Doug, this, this raises an interesting point, because when we talk about, you know, change versus like having, like trying to, to get that the conditions of possibility for change in society, which is, which was the project of, you know, the Enlightenment philosophy, but also of Marxism under changed historical circumstances. This is something different than what Lacan does when he addresses like the unconscious and structured as a language because it's ontology. But the important point, like there is change, of course, for Lacan. Of course, you know, that's not the point. The point is the ontologization of change. Mm. Like, because that, that, that really, I think, sums up um, Lacan's point and also it's, it's his attractivity, is that a word? I'm sorry, for, mm. for the left. Because according to Lacan, we do not have this mysterious layer of being, you know, um, as, as we have with Heidegger, but we have a lack of it. We have a lack of the last fundamental, you know, condition for meaning in the world. So it's, this is why it's called like an anti-philosophy. And this is why it's also called a negative ontology. You know, that's, right. that's very critical to understand with Lacan. And this sort of presupposes a radical openness towards change. But it also ontologizes change because the one thing, you know, you can characterize, or not the one thing, but you can characterize capitalism, cap capitalism also as it stays the same through change, you know. And I think that's very important thought you or a thought figure in that sense. You have to have a keep in mind when you think about Marxism and Frankfurt School. You know, about what's what's the difference when you think when you, you know, really come like try to consequently follow the end of their thoughts guys you're doing a really good job of of, of making me feel more critical about lacan than I, I did at the outset um but i want to come back to you guys and, and go one more round to see if i can defend this this ontol uh, ontologizing of of change because i think that uh, hegel might do it as well and um and uh, and also, I'm going to start the next next session with a, a joke from Zizek, which is always fun. But um, so is it listen, about rape or is it about toilets? It's about chickens. So you know that one too. Um, so so uh, all right, but so I'm going to start another stream on Twitch in just a few minutes. I'm going to go get some coffee, and then we'll start a second stream. People who are watching us on Twitch, stick around, come back. Um, uh, and you know, but this will also be for the Patreon later, but the people who are watching on Twitch get to see what the other people are paying for this one time. Um, I'm breaking the rules. So anyway, uh, I'll send you a link in a little bit guys. It's very Bye. Lacanian.